as um, Jerry said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who is uh, visiting with us for the first time today. I see a few new faces. So glad to have you here with us at the Vineyard. Also welcome to anybody who might be uh, uh, worshiping, I'm sorry, listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings. Well, uh, a few months ago, maybe a little less than that, I was uh, at O'Hare Airport, Airport. I was on, a way, on my way to L.A. to spend the week there, connecting with some friends from Vineyard Music. We're working on a music project, and I was uh, in the boarding line uh, trying to board this plane to L.A., and a few people in front of me were your classic sort of gym rats. And if you don't know what a gym rat is, it's a person who goes to the gym a lot, you know, they're in athletic clothes, you know, this right, tight yoga pants, both of them, the guy and the girl. And they got their, you know, gym shirt on with the cutoff shirt and they're all swollen. Apparently they connected with somebody in line who goes to the same gym uh, that they go to and they would not shut up about this gym. They wouldn't stop talking about it. And they're using all these acronyms and all this stuff. And they were talking about the CrossFit gym, which I had heard of because a few of my friends had um, participated in CrossFit. In fact, the guy that I was going to see is a CrossFit nut too, and he wouldn't shut up about it uh, too. But these people just kept talking and the, you know, boarding was delayed. And so they just, it, it was annoying after a point because they kept talking about it. They dressed the part, they looked the part, and they wouldn't shut up about CrossFit. So when I get to LA, my buddy Casey, said, who's lost like 80 pounds because he changed his diet, and he started doing CrossFit, he says, I know you're on this fast, you've been working out, we're doing CrossFit this week. I'm like, sure, great, this fine. And so I go to CrossFit, grueling workout, everything on me hurts, but like hurts in a good way, right? And after that first workout, I said, man, I could do this. I, I mean, it felt good. Woke up that next morning, super stiff, but three of the, you know, six days I was there, we did CrossFit, and after that week, I was hooked. In fact, while I was there, I got online to see where the closest CrossFit gym was to me, and I found one in Chicago Heights. Now, it's super kind of expensive gym membership, so I had to spend some time convincing my wife, you know, that this is a worthy investment. I even sold a guitar to pay for the first two months just to let her know that I was serious about this. And so I've been doing, you know, CrossFit for about a month and a half now, dropping a little bit of weight gain a little bit of muscle, and my wife complains all the time because she says, like those people in the line, I just won't shut up about it. <laughs> get up at 4.30 in the morning, trying to get there for 5 o'clock workout, and I want to tell her about the workout when I came back. I'm using all these acronyms that she doesn't really know anything about. Some of my vineyard music friends from around the country, we have a, you know, a text group, and we converse daily. Well, what workout did you do today? We're using all these acronyms. My wife was like, did you join some kind of cult or something? Be quiet about this. <laughs> but it's true that we talk about the things that we're into. It's true that we yap, yap, yap about the things that we're into. It's hard for me to stop talking about the things that I'm into. The short list of things that I'm really into, music, especially I connect with somebody else who also into music in the same way, talk about our favorite bands, talk about the latest gear that we can't afford, and talk about the latest CDs that are out. Those of you that are into sports, it's hard for you to stop talking 
about sports, particularly those around you that don't care much for sports, you annoy them because you just won't shut up about this thing that you're into. Many of us are into our families, our wife and kids, our Facebook feeds are just full of pictures and funny stories. People roll their eyes when they look at our feed because we're talking about the things that we're into. This is especially true with kids. My son Joe turned nine yesterday, and I told him I'm taking him to laser tag, you know, today after, after Connect Lunch. I made the mistake of telling him early in the week, and the kid just won't shut up about it. Daddy, can we go look online about it? I've been telling my friends about it. He's asking me questions. I said, son, if you ask me that again, we're not going. <laughs> 30 minutes later, he totally forgot Ask me a question about it. Why? Because he's into it. We talk about the things we're into. You say, preacher, what's your point this morning? Now, my point is, is that in a room full of Christians, it's sad commentary that we don't talk about Jesus that much. Right? When we sing the worship songs, Lord, you're everything to me. I'll walk away from everything for you. You're my deepest passion. You're my greatest joy. Lover of my soul. But we don't talk about Jesus very much. We don't talk about faith very much. If somebody asked us what we're into, somebody asked us what's the most important thing in our life, we've been conditioned as Christians to sort of spit out this Christian answer, oh, Jesus, of course, the Lord is number one. He sits on the throne of my heart. But if somebody who didn't know you were just to observe you, Just listen in on your conversations. Just spy and creep on you and just look at what you post and look at what you share and look at what you talk about the most. Many of us, our actions, our communication would betray our assertion that Jesus is the most important thing. Friends, in a room full of Christians, many of us are convicted by the truth that some of us simply don't talk about Jesus very much. I'm just here to politely say, I think that's a problem. And in presenting that problem, I think that's a good kickoff to a brand new sermon series that I'm starting this morning, a sermon series that I'm simply calling Go Tell It. Go Tell It. As people of God, as people who have been arrested by God's goodness and commissioned to go and arrest others with God's goodness and his good news, we are charged Uh, by Jesus himself, to go and tell it. A long Christian word for that would be evangelism, to go and tell others, to go and witness to others. Go and tell it. Jesus says in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, go into all the earth and make disciples of all men. Teach them, instruct them, tell them what you've been told. Jesus says another place in Mark chapter 16, go everywhere and share this good news. Paul says in the opening verses of Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, he says, saving everyone who believes. Paul says, this is good stuff. I can't keep it to myself. I have to share it. And so what Jesus is saying and what Paul echoes is that Jesus doesn't want us to shut up about him. Doesn't mind us talking about other things, doesn't mind us having other interests, but he doesn't want us to be quiet about him. He wants us to share the gospel. And the gospel simply means good 
news. Good news. But we come back to the sobering truth, the convicting truth, the indicting truth that we as Christians, some of us don't talk about Jesus very much for many reasons. Some of us, unlike Paul, we're ashamed. I mean, after all, this stuff is out there. It's kind of wacky, right? Uh, After all, you've heard uh, what people say about Christians when they don't think that Christians are present. You've seen Christians be wacky and weird and goofy, and you don't want to be that guy. Some of us are ashamed. Others of us, more innocently, are simply uncertain. We've We've been arrested by God's love. We felt the warmth of his care, the power of his spirit. We're thoroughly convinced, but we don't have the language, right? We don't have the words. Uh, We're not gifted like the preacher to to wax long and poetic about the goodness of God, the mercy of God. And because we don't have the right words to say, because we feel like we might get stumped if they ask us a question, we, 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 we withdraw and we don't say anything. By the way, if you're there, um, just bring him here, and we'll talk to him about the gospel. Bring him here. There's some invites on the back. We'll talk to him. You're feeling uncertain about it. But the goal of this series is to help you be more certain about who Jesus is, help you wrap some language around what God has done in your life so that we can be obedient and we can go and tell it to our neighbors. We can go and tell it to our family. We can go and tell it to our friends. We can go and tell it to the stranger, as as scary as that sounds. Um, But I want to start this week realizing and understanding, sympathizing with you, understanding that many of us are just insecure when it comes to sharing, explaining, and unpacking the gospel. And so one of the goals of this uh, series is to help you understand what the gospel is, what the good news is, and to create a sense of urgency surrounding not just coming to faith yourself, but sharing it with others. Say that again. The goal of this series is to help wrap some language around and help you understand what the gospel, what the good news is, and to create a sense of urgency for you and for me to go and tell it. I want to start, though, this week with a sermon that I'm simply calling Bad News, Good News. I want to start this week with a sermon that I'm simply calling Bad News, Good News good news. We talk about the gospel, we talk about the good news, and we can get all whipped up about the good news, but the good news isn't that good unless you understand the bad news. Ever watch those infomercials where they're trying to get you to buy some project, product? They usually spend the first few seconds exaggerating how complicated a problem is in your life. You see the woman, she's trying to open a jar, and like the mayonnaise just spills all over. It's totally terrible acting, right? And they frame the problem for you, and then they introduce, well, if you buy this product, you can get that jar open without it spilling all over you. It's terrible acting, but you get the point. Great communicators, great commercials, they frame a problem for you first. They give you the bad news, and the bad news and the problem seems really bad until they introduce the good news. The good news seems better when you understand what the bad news is. Well, we experience the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we can't really understand it right unless we deal with the bad news. And so what I want to do today, I want to talk about the good news, but I want to first frame our issue. I want to talk about the solution, Jesus Christ and the uh, the uh, the work of the cross, but I want to talk to us a little bit 
about the problem. I'm going to frame the problem, and I want to do that by looking at a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 1. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Romans chapter 1. Bad news, good news. We're going to get to the good news, but we're going to spend some time on the bad news first. Romans chapter 1. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Feel free to use your tablets or your phones. We'll also be projecting the words on the screen. And while you find that, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity I have to share your word with your people. Thank you, Lord, that we're here gathered on this Sunday morning to worship you and to fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we ask, as we always do, that you would set the table. Set the table for us, Lord. And Lord, we just promise to eat whatever you set before us today. We'll eat the sweets, the good stuff, the things that encourage, but we'll also eat our vegetables this morning. Uh, the things that maybe are, are a little bit bitter, things that challenge us and convict us, maybe indict us a bit. Lord, you set the table, and we will feast on what you provide. Lord, I pray that you would give us warm and open hearts to receive what you would want to share with us today. Father, embolden us to share your word with those who need you most. Lord, move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and light might shine through. Put power on these words you've given me to speak. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're starting in Romans chapter 1 this morning. And you have to understand that Romans uh, was, was written by the, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a Christian church in Rome at a time where it's just a really pagan culture, really god I guess they're not godless. They're polytheistic, and they're serving lots of God. They're really enamored by power and wealth and importance. And Paul really has his work cut out ministering to, instructing, and teaching the church at Rome because the culture that they live in is just so, you know, so secular and so anti-God, right? The one true God. And so Paul has his work cut out for them, but Paul does a masterful job of helping them understand what their issue is. And so before we read this, it's helpful for us to understand, it's necessary for us to understand that Paul isn't just talking about some people in some distant land long, long ago. He's talking about us, too. The problems that he out, uh, frames here can easily be applied to us living here in the 21st century in the United States. And so Paul spent some time describing the problem. We'll start at verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven, that's a great way to start this morning, against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. That's important. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created 
instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. And since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backsliders, haters of God, insolent and proud and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. I'm glad he added that to the list. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless, and they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. You feeling encouraged yet? The real pick-me-up this morning. No, Paul pulls no punches here. In this opening chapter of one of the most important books in Scripture, Paul leans into us in a way that doesn't feel right. He presses in on the issues, and in case, you know, you had a tendency to highlight one sin over the other, he, he goes through the whole list and just hit everybody in the room. Takes a shotgun approach in explaining what our problem is. He gets in our face. He makes us uncomfortable He frames for us what the bad news is. And in case you haven't figured it out, the bad news is really bad. And the bad news is this. We have a sin problem. Sure, the Romans long ago, they they had a sin problem. Sure, the church at Rome, they were dealing and nursing their own sins. But we, humanity, you and me, we have a sin problem. And that sin problem is a sickness. It's an infectious disease of the soul. And in case we, unless we don't, unless we deal with it, it will certainly lead to death. It is terminal. And so what I want to do um, by way of presenting the bad news first is unpack this passage of Scripture that Paul lays out for us. There's three key things in here that really helps us frame the problem, really helps us understand what our issue is, I'll scurry past these after a bit, and I'll get to the good news. But three things I want to pull out, and Paul uh, addresses our issue and frames the bad news. He says, we're, we have a sin problem because we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. He says in verse 18, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If I have one complaint, and I just don't have one, I have many, but if I have one complaint about the day and age that we're living in, is that it's so hard. It's so hard to figure out what's really true. We see this term fake news being thrown about. uh, If you watch the news and if you, you know, read the news, it's fake news. It's hard to identify which sources are real, who's got the real hard unwavering truth. It's really hard to know. Even if you're somebody who's rooted and grounded in the Word, it's just challenging today to figure out what's really, really true. 
And I think that our social media culture doesn't really help that. You know, it used to be the important, knowledgeable people had a voice. We tuned in and watched Dan Rather, you know, on the news. This is the newsman. We get our news from this source. We wait until the morning. We read the paper, right? These are credible sources. We can trust them, right? These are, there's only a few people speaking. We go and listen to the preacher, and hopefully the preacher's got a word from the Lord. There's only a few people that had the authority, like, to speak and sort of identify truth. Now, everybody's got a social, you know, everybody's got a Twitter, Twitter handle. Everybody's got a blog. Everybody's going live. You know, I just got a few thoughts to share. And everybody expects that their voice and their version of truth should have equal weight because that's, well, that's who we are now. And all of a sudden, we got to wade through all of these voices, all of these opinions, all of these talking heads, and it's so hard to figure out what's really true and what's not. Paul goes a little bit deeper on this. He says, listen, listen, you've been suppressing the truth. You've been suppressing the truth, but you guys don't have any excuse for not knowing the truth and not knowing who God really is simply because You've walked outside before. <laughs> and this is really interesting here because Paul points to what I call the obviousness of creation. He says in verse 20, in verse 19, they know the truth about God because they have made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. You behold creation. You may not know the ins and outs of truth. You may not know the ins and outs of who God is. But Paul says, if you've walked outside before, you've seen God. If you've beheld the sun rising and setting, if you beheld rain coming down out of the ground, you know, out of the sky, if you've seen, you know, the woman in the reproductive system, how her body can make another baby, and when that baby comes out, there's food ready for that baby, and it grows, and they re- If you've seen that, God says, you, you, you've got no excuse. And I sympathize with my brothers and sisters who are either atheistic or agnostic. We don't make fun of atheists here. We welcome them. We want them to come and hear this message. So I don't make fun of them, but I, I, I get a little confused by them sometimes. And my advice to them is you go out and you look up at the sky, and whoever made that, spend the rest of your life finding out who that is. And when you find who that is, get down on your knees and worship them. Get down on your knees and ask him, what are you here for? Ask him, what do you want to do? You may not, enjoy, you know, may not believe in my God, but you, you, somebody did that. Somebody created that. Somebody is the author of all of this. And Paul says we're without excuse. It's that we have no excuse to suppress the truth or ignore the truth that God is powerful, that he is awesome and mighty. Paul says because you've been outside before. You've beheld creation. You saw that, and you, didn't, you weren't even interested in pursuing who did that. You heard credible people come by you and tell you who that God was and what that God wants from you, and you ignored them because you had something better to do. You, you heard somebody more interesting to listen to. Paul says, we have suppressed the truth with our wickedness. And that wickedness just doesn't mean we're doing bad stuff. Now, wickedness simply means we're doing our own thing. We're pursuing our own version of truth. We want a version of this that's tailored to us, that doesn't put us out, that strokes our ego, and that ignores the places where we fall short. Paul says we have suppressed the truth. 
And we, they did it then, and we do it now. They did it then, and we do it now. Paul goes on, uh, continues to say that not only have we suppressed the truth, but we have a tendency to worship idols. We have a tendency to worship idols. He says in verse 21, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God, even give him thanks. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. This word idolatry simply means we're worshiping created things rather than the Creator. We're worshiping and adoring, giving ourselves, giving priority to the things that God has made rather than the Maker. And so some of us are all jacked up and we're all messed up and we're all confused, not because we're terrible people, but because we're idolatrous. We've suppressed the truth and in seeking our own versions of this life, we've created gods that don't require much of us. God that sets, you know, a pretty low bar. God that we can manufacture and swap out if we don't like it anymore. Paul says our problem is that we're idolatrous. And so my question to you as you process this, particularly the bad news and what our issue is, what do you worship? What do you worship? Now, I said earlier in the sermon that we don't talk about Jesus very much and that what we talk about, what we yap about, what we won't shut up about often identifies pretty clearly to us the things that we're into, the things that we worship. And so what do you worship? What sits on the throne of your heart? What's number one on the list of priorities in your life as is characterized by how you spend your money, how you spend your time, and what you talk about? What do you worship? What are your idols? Some of us, our idols are food. It's one of the hidden ones in the church. We love, you know, to eat for everything. We talk about every manner of sin and demonize every manner of issue and wickedness, but then we'll go down to the basement and stuff ourselves with one of our favorite gods. Some of us, our idols are food. Some of us, our idols are sex, pornography, social media, vanity, beauty, being thought well of. That's an idol. Some of us, if we really warped our idol, can be the church and what we do for God and the importance that we derive from that. Some of us, our idol could be our idea of success and climbing the ladder at any cost. Some of us, our idol is the ideal circumstance. We'll do whatever it takes to produce what we believe to be the ideal circumstance. We'll compromise, we'll steal, we'll, you know, we'll beg, we'll do whatever we, because that's our God. Paul says we worship idols, and we do so shamelessly, and that's one of the bigger problems that we have. And so the third thing is probably the worst thing because this is sort of how God responds to our suppression of the truth. This is how God has responded to us after being idolatrous over and over and over again. Paul said God gives us over to our sin. God gives us over to our sin. You know, Paul uses the word he abandons us to our sin. 
And you've heard me say this over and over and over again, and I can't say it enough. The worst thing God can do to you is leave you alone. The worst thing God can do to you is leave you alone. Paul says it clearly here in verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things, things with each other's body. They traded the truth of God's word. They traded his recommendations, his statutes and principles for their own version of it. They traded him for their own gods. They got wrapped up in all this mess. Wouldn't heed the warnings? Wouldn't heed the judgment? And so what God did, he said, fine, I'm going to turn you over to it. And so many of us think about God's judgment as some active thing. The Lord throwing, you know, lightning bolts from heaven, causing things to rain down on you, opening up the floor so you can fall in. And God just sort of, psh, 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 I'll, I'll teach them. But honestly, what God's wrath looks like is, you want that? Have it. You want that thing? You think it's so great? I've sent people to tell you that that's wrong. I've sent people to tell you that's not my best for you. I've even erected billboards on your way to work so that you can happen past it. And you just keep going after, you keep going after, you keep ignoring me. And Jesus says, have it. Have your food. Have your sexual freedom. Have it. Now, that man or that woman that you're pursuing, that's not my best for you. That's not my best for you. I've shown you that over and over. You got to have it. Have it. He abandons us to the things that we keep choosing over him, and it ruins us. I was watching a show on the Discovery Channel, and it was, you know, talking about, you know, exotic weapons. And this guy pulls out this huge whip, this long whip. And the guy that was interviewing him said, okay, what would you do with this whip if, if you were trying to really do harm to your enemy? The guy turns the handle around and said, I give it to him. Because apparently there's a way that you have to kind of, you know, work this thing so that you don't slap your own self in the face. And so that you don't put a lash on your own back. He said, if I was trying to harm somebody, especially if they were a novice, I'd just hand them this thing. They'd tear themselves up. I wouldn't even have to lay a hand on them. The same is true with our sin. This is how the enemy destroys us, by cooking up some devious plan and, you know, it just figures out what you like, figures out what you keep sitting on the throne of your heart, figures out what nobody can talk to you about. He just gives you more of that. And the Lord, when he wants to teach us, he says, fine, have it. And some of you are here today at the end of your rope, because God, in his goodness, has said, have it. Have it. Some of us used to talk, yep, 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 talk so much, talk so much about what you never do, and talk about the people who are into stuff. And the Lord said, do you know what you, who you would be if I took my hand off your life? You keep talking, you're better than everybody. The Lord just says, fine. Try it without me for a month. Try it without my spirit. Try it without my intervention. You're talking about that person over and over. Why don't I give you over to the thing that is the secret idol of your heart? And we've, we've seen some of us, you're here right now, in, in the season of your life, right now, God is just, 
He's let you have it. And this is his wrath. He gave them over to this thing. Now Paul really gets really detailed when he runs through the issues and the sins that you know, we, we, we indulge as a result of pursuing uh, falsehood and you know, cooking all these idols into, the, into our lives. He really goes through a really comprehensive list of issues we get ourselves into. And interestingly enough, Paul deals with the subject of homosexuality. And this is a really tough subject, especially in this day. Um, but I really admire the fact that Paul doesn't skip over the really sticky stuff. And frankly, you don't want a preacher that gets to something that's sticky or gets to something that could be polarizing or gets to something that's been highly politicized and go, I better not talk about that. And so there's plenty of temptation to do so when we're framing what sin is and we're framing what God's best is not. Because of the course of the last seven years, we've had people leave the church because we've endeavored to interpret the Bible in a way that we feel honors God and his truth. But since Paul talked about it, I, he talks about this issue of homosexuality. He says men and women did shameful things with one another. They indulged in shameful, unnatural acts with one another. This is the scriptures. This is what God says. We've got to wrestle with this. We got to do so with compassion and kindness and humility, knowing that we might not have this issue, but we've certainly got another issue, but we've got to talk about it. I was talking about this years ago, and I got a letter from a couple who had just been coming to the church, really excited about church, and said, hey, listen, we're leaving because we don't feel like you guys are kind to those in the LGBT. I said, well, where would you get that from? We said, well, on Sunday you framed it as a sin, and we just felt that that was really harsh. I said in so many words, brother, you, you need a higher bar than your friend struggles with this. You need a higher bar for God's moral excellence than you know somebody that would be offended if they heard this. And so I don't say that to throw a grenade into the room, but I'm just saying this is... What God is saying is this is not his best for you. This is not the way that he intended for this to go. And I think what really makes this pronouncement really powerful is that Paul goes on to name just about everything else that you can struggle with. And almost gives us a hint as Christian leaders, as people who will teach and proclaim the good news about Jesus and who will unpack the bad news for us. It's like, we need not get, you know, on any soapboxes about particular sins. We need not weight certain sins as super icky to God, and these are just kind of icky, and if you do this, then don't try to cut back on that. Paul lumps all this stuff in together. And so we, we, we don't have any pet sins here. Everything's getting hit. God wants you to be whole and right. And everything gets hit. So for those of us who want to harp on homosexuality and harp on that and quote scriptures and, you know, throw shots on Facebook, this is what Paul, he names some other stuff, wickedness, sin, and greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior. Did anybody get hit yet? Not yet, okay. Black sliders, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. 
inventing new ways of sinning. They're disobedient to their parents, promise breakers, heartless, merciless, unkind. I think everybody in the room got hit. A problem is broad, it's huge. And because we've ignored and suppressed the truth, the Lord has given us over to it. He's given us over to it. And so as we engage the bad news, some of us for the first time listening to it like this, we see that the bad news is really, really, really bad. Now, if I invited the worship team up and we just ended there, this would be, this would be a horrible sermon, right? But I tell you time after time, we preach good news at this church. Now, we're going to get into some stuff. We're going to talk about our problem, but we preach good news here. Good news here. And so if this is the bad news, then what is the good news? If this is the problem, then what, friends, is the solution? I'm glad you asked. Turn real quickly to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Here's the good news. Paul says this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Paul says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Paul continues, For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. Did you hear that? We are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of of our sins. He's talking about the work of the cross. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he, what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners, that's you and me, to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law or following the rules. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles or non-Jews? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Friends, this is the good news. And the bad news is really, really bad, but the good news is really, really good. Paul begins to talk about the good news by saying what could sound like more bad news, and he says that we all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. And you read it, you're like, preacher, I thought you were getting to the good part. I don't know about you, but that's good to hear that we've, we've all messed up, especially if you've gotten in touch with some wacky Christians who want to make you feel extra bad for your particular strand of sin. 
who've, you know, in and of themselves assigned different points to different types of sin, and the thing they struggle with is just kind of a small thing, but your thing is kind of big and major, and you really need to get on your face before the Lord. Just, you know, Paul says, all of us have sinned. And the ground is level beneath the cross. We're all a mess. We're all a mess. I don't know about you, but I feel a little less bad about what I'm dealing with if I know that somebody else is dealing with it. I'm not talking about being complacent. I'm not talking about being indifferent. But now that I know that we're all in the same boat, we can relax a little bit and, and lean into the solution rather than wallowing in our issues. Paul says this is for everybody because we all are a mess. And if you don't think you're a mess, you're a bigger mess than you are, than you thought you are. We're all a mess. Paul says the really good news is that God has made us right with him. Our God has made us righteous through faith in Jesus. God has made us right. So one of the mega things of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, says this, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard for what is right. And so the righteousness of God is the rightness of, the, of God. His goodness, his unquestionable goodness, his unquestionable rightness. And what God has done is he's credited his righteousness to us. We're scoundrels. We're broken. We're bankrupt spiritually and morally. But God credits his infinite righteousness to us. For some of us, that's hard to imagine. So just imagine that your bank account has zero dollars in it. Actually imagine that your bank account is overdrawn. And some of you say, preacher, I don't have to do too much imagining because that's exactly where I am today. I'm overdrawn. There's nothing. It's just a wealthy guy comes, looks at all your bills, look at your, you know, your, 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 your zero balance and says, you know what, I'm going to credit my wealth to you. You're okay. And so just imagine that God has taken his infinite wealth of righteousness, looked at our morally bankrupt souls and said, I'm going to credit my righteousness unto you. I'm going to take you out of the, out of the red and put you into the black. And not just get you back to zero, but I'm going to put a bomb on it. When I look at you, I see you as righteousness because I've cre credited my righteousness unto you. This is how we're made right with God through the work of the cross. And Paul says the only way you receive this is that you believe. Believe what? Believe first that I'm a mess, that I've sinned, that broken covenant with God, that I need him. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're broken enough to recognize their need for a Savior. And so in order to receive the righteousness of Christ, in order to be made right with God, to receive salvation so that this good news is good for you, it means that you acknowledge that you're a mess, you, you acknowledge that you need him, and acknowledge that Jesus died for you. For you. And some of us really struggle with it. Even if you believe in Jesus, somehow there's a measure of particular strand of brokenness that has you questioning whether or not Jesus died for you. Maybe what you've done in your past 
as checkered as it may be, as shameful as your history might be, maybe you feel like God could save somebody who was into less devious things or less shameful things, but God, whatever you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your story is, you believe on the saving work of the cross, God credits his righteousness to you. Jesus died for you. He died for you. He died for you. And so I want that to just sink in for a moment. I want this to sink in how, how good news that is. How awesome that is. Like if we really believe that. And so we're talking about the importance of understanding the gospel and sharing it with other people. Some of us, if we eat at an okay restaurant, we're checking in, we're tagging people. You know, they're giving away burritos to the first 30 people. You've got to get down here, you know. You don't want to miss this. But it speaks to how we devalue the gospel when we don't tell anybody about it. Listen, we got people dying and going to hell. We got people living miserable lives when the answer to their misery is found only in Jesus. You're living the good life. You remember who you used to be before the Lord found you, who, who you used to be, how ashamed you used to be, what a wretch you used to be. I know some of your stories, and some of you are moved to tears when you, when you tell me who you used to be and how sweet it was when you walked into a church that accepted you for who you are, and not only did you discover that those people would accept you for who you are, you, you, you found out that they served a God who would have you despite, of, you know, despite your past, no matter who you were or what you've done. And what we've done, sadly, is we've taken that goodness, that sweetness, that light, and we've locked it away. People dying all around us, and, and we've locked it away. And we've locked it away. Friends, the bad news is really bad, but the good news is really good. But those who are suffering, and they don't know who Jesus is, and those who are suffering, and they haven't heard this, are suffering just like you used to suffer, are hopeless just like you were hopeless are broken just like you used to be broken. And what God charges us as we take this in and as we respond to it and as we dispatch this in our life, he, he instructs us to take this and spread it all around. To take this and spread it all around. And Paul puts it really, really plain for us. Puts it really simply for us. And as I close here, worship team, you can come up. I just want to reaffirm the big picture for us particularly for those of you who feel like you don't really have great language to explain this, and you haven't really understood what God is getting at with this. The reality of salvation is that first we have a really big problem, and that problem is sin. That problem is sin. Each and every one of us, we've got a sin problem. Each and every one of us has suppressed the truth. Each and every one of us have created idols. And each and every one of us, God allows us to experience the pain of being given over to those things, but God doesn't stop there. He introduces the power, the salvific work of the cross into our life through which we can be made right with Christ. We don't have to live the same way that we live. We don't have to live hopeless, miserable lives because there's good news. Christ 
has paid the penalty for our sins. Don't add anything to it. And don't take anything away. This is the good news. This is the good news. And so I really feel strongly that the Lord is calling us as a church and as a people to go tell it, to go share it. And some of us, you know, a step before we go tell it is actually you know, begin to believe this stuff ourselves. I really was struck by the possibility that many of us have just settled into cultural Christianity. And by cultural Christianity, I mean we just, this is what our mom did. It's a good story. I feel good when I go to church. I cry a little bit when they sing some of those songs. And I just don't really, I haven't really taken this stuff in, but this is kind of good for the kids. They're nice people here. But I want to challenge you as we engage this series and as we unpack more of the good news and how we're supposed to share it. Have, have we really taken our own medicine? Have we really understood the gospel? Have we really understood how good this news is? Have we really put this to work in our lives? Here's the, here's the secret. You won't tell anybody until you actually believe it. You won't pay what it costs to possibly be that wacky Christian, to actually be made fun of and uninvited to things, and to be that guy, you won't pay the cost unless you really have taken this into your heart, unless you're really experiencing the sweetness and goodness of having a transformed life, of experiencing a God who has taken your old you and giving you a new life. We won't tell a soul until this is real to us. And so throughout the course of this series, and even as we worship God today, uh, my prayer is, Lord, would you make this real to us? Would you make this good news good to us? and create an urgency in our hearts to tell anybody who will listen. I want us to go tell it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for the cross. And Lord, we acknowledge our sinful, uh, sin, sinfulness and our brokenness today. Paul's right. He nailed us. We, we, we've suppressed the truth. We've seen your work in creation. We've seen your work in our life. And we've, we've still tried to manufacture and pursue lesser versions of truth. You, you nailed us today, Lord. But Paul was right. We, we've, we've created idols for ourselves. We worship the created things other than the creator. And yes, Lord, even now, some of us, we're in the throes of life apart from you, where you've stepped back and you've just sort of given us over to the things that we keep pursuing. Lord, we, we realize the problem. Oh, Father, this morning, help us to lean into the good news this morning. Help us to lean into the truth of who you are. Help us lean into you as the solution for what ails us, and Lord. And as that takes hold in our life, Father, would you help us? Would you give us the strength? Would you give us the courage? Would you give us the boldness? To share that with others. And Father, as we worship you today, Father, would you solidify and verify the truth that you spoke. And Lord, for the ways that you've convicted us as we've beheld the ways that we've fallen away from you, Father, I pray that you will remove any measure of condemnation and would you just bring the holy conviction that moves us to action and causes us to respond to what you want us to do and who you want us to be. Help us to see this as good news. And help us to share it with anybody, Father, 
who you call us to. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.